Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Lewis Williams. And I'm Calvin Ostrom. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Linnica College, Oxford. Today we're going to be joined by Mira Hanagard, a former PhD student at the University of Uppsala. We'll be talking about her experiences being a graduate student at a Swedish PhD program, her research on social epistemology, as well as her decision to drop out of her PhD in a philosophy program. If after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Mira, you can email her at hanagardmvl at gmail.com. Mira Hanagard, welcome to the Philosopher's Nest. Thank you. Uh, what was it that first inspired you to apply to graduate programs in philosophy? So what inspired me to do the MPhil and like continue after my bachelor's degree was I had a really, really good teacher in my third year at undergrad who really inspired me. I don't know, we worked a lot on my dissertation together and I realized I, I really enjoyed writing philosophy and doing research in like, uh, I wrote that in feminist philosophy and I really, really enjoyed reading that and writing that paper and formulating my arguments in like a longer piece of writing and really got to see more about what I thought philosophy, what being a philosopher was more about. And I really enjoyed that. And she was very encouraging and inspiring and helped me apply to, to master's programs. So, I, th- I mean, I think that was the, the first thing that really led me into thinking that it was something I wanted to do past undergrad. And then, I don't know, just kept rolling. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And um, I think in correspondence with us, you mentioned an interest in religion and philosophy, but then you decided to sort of focus more on the philosophy part instead of the religion part. Mm. I'm curious about what what motivated that switch. You know, why philosophy? I think that I realized I really enjoyed arguing and like thinking for myself a bit more than religion allowed. When I was younger, my whole idea was I want to like discuss the big questions. And the big questions are, well, to me at least, religion and philosophy. Like, is there a God? How, how are you a good person? Does what you do matter? Does your life matter? And I thought that that would fall into religion a bit more than it actually ended up doing, <laughs> at least in my studies. And I thought philosophy had much more intriguing questions um, surrounding, you know, all of these subjects that I thought was interesting. Uh, whereas religion was a bit more learning you know, what people had already written and what that meant rather than doing it for yourself. At least that was was my experience with it. So, yeah. You alluded also to the MPhil that you, of course, uh, applied for and studied at Cambridge. But I'd be interested to hear, uh, Mira, as our first guest from outside of the UK and North America, how you found that transition into the Cambridge programme in the UK and then the subsequent transition back to Uppsala in Sweden were there any differences that you saw in the way that philosophy is taught and practiced in the UK versus in Sweden? Yes, so, so many. <laughs> I did my undergrad in the UK as well. So the transition from going to, I mean, the equivalent of a, of a sixth form in Sweden to university in the UK was very, very, that was big and it was awful. And the first year was not very fun. Uh, it was very difficult learning, like, trying to fit into people you don't share any background or cultural history or anything with like not even the language I I spoke it okay but it was difficult to like make that my first language and understanding mostly the grading system that was extremely difficult the first year then going to Cambridge wasn't 
particularly difficult because I'd already lived and studied in the UK for three years. And then going back was perhaps even more strange because I was very used to the British way of teaching philosophy and learning philosophy. And I'd never really felt very restricted in what philosophy I could do. So if I wanted to do something analytical or something uh, continental, continental philosophy was very big in Cardiff, which was a bit strange because it isn't (laughs) in the UK generally, but it was a good mix of everything. And then in Sweden, they have a very strict sort of division between the um, what they call theoretical philosophy and practical philosophy. And so you do a PhD in either theoretical philosophy or practical philosophy or perhaps aesthetics. And so you had to sort of choose. Of course, most people that do study like philosophy for three whole years and get an undergrad will have a little bit of each. But it's generally like you do either uh, practical philosophy, which is like ethics and political philosophy, or you do theoretical, which is like metaphysics and semantics and that sort of thing. And so I, I thought it was very strange, specifically for myself, who's interested in social epistemology and epistemology is theoretical and social epistemology is like practical philosophy. I didn't really agree. I, I still don't agree with that division of the, the way that philosophy is taught. I think you should be well-rounded or that you should be free to choose whatever. And just university system in Sweden is very different from the UK. The British system is a bit stricter especially when it comes to like marks and, and hand-ins and things. Uh, Sweden is a lot more lenient hmm. in some ways. I mean, they're, they're both good systems, but I was very used to the British ones by the time I came back to Sweden uh, and it felt a bit odd. Mm-hmm. So just based on all that then, would you still say that you kind of recommend graduate philosophy students look more into Swedish universities, maybe if the sort of interests they have fit the structure of the Swedish style more or... Yeah, I think so. I think that I think that the Swedish system for a PhD student is really, really good. So I, I don't know if I would say that someone who's interested in philosophy at large, in like a general and don't really know exactly what they want to do, should go to undergrad in Swedish universities for philosophy. But for a PhD student, it is very, very good. So you get a lot of responsibility. I think what I like in my but it most and unfortunately doesn't have a lot, a lot to do with the studies itself. It has to do with uh, the way that you're treated. You are considered an, an active member of staff. You are paid a monthly salary. It doesn't cost any tuition. You have your own office. You get to teach students from your very first term if you want to and do all these. Uh, you, you're treated very much like someone who has a real actual job that was expected to work normal office hours. And the practical things are really, really good. You get to work a lot with everyone, not just PhD students, but with everyone of the faculty. And you get to learn in a different way than I was used to. When you had like one person who was your supervisor in the UK and you're writing, but here it's much more like all the faculty. It's a bit more open across like these hierarchical lines. Like a professor isn't someone that, you know, maybe you get to talk to once. It's, you know, you can have a chat with them over lunch and they treat you like any other member of staff. And that I really enjoyed also, the fact that you get to take a lot of classes outside of the faculty or outside philosophy, even if you can justify like, I really wanted to do one in gender studies because it was relevant to what I was studying. And if I could just say, oh, this will work well with what I'm writing, they'll be like, cool, do it. Um, so I think for a PhD student, the Swedish system is really, really good. And I would recommend people to do it. Also, you're, you will 
only be accepted if they pay you. So you don't have to worry about funding. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a benefit. I mean, it sounds kind of to me as if, I don't know if you think this is fair to say, it sounds like it's got some of the benefits of the US system, whereby you're, you know, you're essentially salaried, it comes with funding automatically, and there's mm. teaching responsibilities from the beginning. But you also said you're kind of expected to come in with your firm interests from the outset in a way that seems kind of akin to the UK way of doing things rather than the American way of doing things. So it sounds like you've kind of uh, got benefits from both different systems coming in there. Do you think that's a kind of fair way of putting it? Yeah, I, I think that's very fair. I think even it's even uh, perhaps both better and worse than the, the British ones because I had to write, I think it was like an eight-page long proposal for exactly what I was going to do and uh, what I was expecting to write for four years. It was a very, very long application. The British one is quite long, but this was... They expect you to know even more like your research proposal is supposed to be quite detailed and you're supposed to know quite a bit about what you want to do. But then also, I think much like the rich ones, they don't really care if that's what you end up doing. <laughs> so they want to see, like, can you write de- uh, like a project that is of a reasonable size and, and length? But then if you end up changing your mind, they're quite, they don't mind too much. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> so, so at Uppsala, you work on social epistemology you alluded to earlier. So what, what is social epistemology and sort of what sorts of questions do social epistemologists look at that maybe like regular epistemologists don't? So social epistemologists are generally interested in questions about how we get knowledge socially. So mostly from other people rather than perhaps discussing what knowledge is. It's more about If you tell me something, how do I know if it's true? Should I trust you? Why should I trust you? Why should I not trust you? When is your testimony knowledge and things like that? I was quite interested in how hierarchical structures in knowledge work. So about who is an expert? How do I recognize an expert? And trying to understand when I am more knowledgeable than someone else in a conversation. What my goal was to discuss mansplaining as an example of a false epistemic uh, expert. So someone who claims to be an expert, they act as if they're an expert. They are not. And different, what I call um, epistemic uh, entitlement. When you act as if you're more knowledgeable than someone else. No, that's interesting. I'd be interested as well to hear um, what then, in your view, would make it legitimate for a person to put themselves forward as some kind of authority or knower about a subject? Well, yeah, that's a very good question. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking a bit, I was looking into what some other people have said on this subject. One of the issues is that I never really knew where to start with this question. So one of them was like, how do I recognize an actual expert? And like, how do I recognize entitlement as another one? And, And how, what would like an epistemic entitlement be and then what would a real expert be versus a false expert and I think my very very not polished answer is that an expert would be someone who can make many many more true propositions can make more (laughs) statements of truth about a subject than someone else and and like more than the vast majority or whichever level of expertise you're at I would be an expert or more expert in something than someone else if I can make more true propositions than they can on the subject. So I, I, it's a very, very not finished idea. And it's, it's uh, something that can be very much questioned. 
Yeah. So you mentioned mansplaining in your answer, which seems to be the kind of like troubling case of when a person claims to be a knower about a subject. So I guess, you know, by having the word man in there, we also need to think about, and then I think this is something you mentioned uh, in your emails with us about the role that sort of feminist philosophy and maybe sort of intersectionality plays a role in here. So, you know, there's all these different lenses that social epistemology gives us. And I was just wondering, like, how do you think that sheds a light on the subject that you're interested in, which is, or partly interested in, which is this phenomenon of mansplaining? I, I think that it, it's very interesting. So I, I've worked a lot in feminist philosophy, and I think that that's where I started. And then social epistemology is like, I look at social epistemology through the lens of feminist philosophy a lot and different intersectional issues. And I've, I, I guess I've worked on mansplaining because it is like an established term, but I don't want, you know, that to be the only issue, like the only issue at hand. It's all sorts of, when I believe that because of some sort of personhood, because I I don't listen to someone because they are of a certain race or have certain, well, for example, when someone might be uh, having some like physical handicap or something, I might not see them as like a, a, a as a knower and and they'll be using the same kind of problems or the same problematic position so i'm i was arguing that mansplaining is a kind of epistemic entitlement you feel entitled to be the in the position of a knower towards someone else based on for example their gender or something like that it might not be uh, something you're fully aware of uh, it could be uh, implicit bias or explicit bias and I also wanted to argue that this is a type of epistemic harm but not really sure how to <laughs> so I did I, I mean I obviously I haven't finished my whole PhD thesis so it's difficult to say where I would land but that's kind of the areas where I was roaming around Hmm. Yeah, I see. Well, on that note, um, you obviously mentioned in correspondence with us prior to recording that recently you've decided to um, quit your PhD program and move on to uh, new ventures. So would you mind maybe telling us a bit about what motivated that decision and where you plan on going from here? Yeah, sure. What motivated that adventure? Honestly, quitting my PhD is one of the most difficult things I've ever done. I think when you decide that you are going to like be a doctor in philosophy, it becomes like part of your idea of yourself and getting rid of that was very difficult trying to see myself as something else than what I'd expect it to be um the reason for why I did so was because I realized that although I love philosophy I love writing philosophy a lot I like arguing and I like thinking about philosophy I don't like reading philosophy I think it is terribly boring (laughs) and (laughs) I mean, I do find some things quite interesting, but sitting in seminars and discussing things that I don't understand and don't necessarily care for wasn't, I didn't really enjoy it. And I I sound so weird right now, but I felt like I was getting kind of older and I didn't want to be stuck in a school bench. I wanted to like get a place where I knew I could stay for a few years. And I think for a lot of young um, academics, they know that, you know, after I've done my PhD, I'm going to have to move to a different country or, you know, always chasing that full-time position. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to pursue other passions along with my philosophy. And I wasn't motivated enough to continue. I feel like 
at least the idea, and maybe the idea is harmful, maybe the idea is, is bad, but the idea is that when you do a PhD, it's your biggest passion. Like it's all you want to do all the, all the time. You'd be so motivated. All I do in my spare time is just read philosophy and I listen to philosophy podcasts and like it's my whole life. And I'm like, that isn't, that's not my whole life. I don't want that to be my whole life. I want to do many other things. And I think that maybe that's not entirely true, but you do actually have to have a lot of motivation and drive in order to actually finish a PhD. It is, it is a lot of effort. And it was an effort I was willing to do basically so oh yeah you also asked what what where my life's taking me now I've started a new job and now I work in insurance administration it is something completely different and honestly if I'd seen myself like 10 years ago I would be horrified because I don't know (laughs) I just (laughs) I just see it like insurance it's like people want money and suits and I don't know a bad image of it but I quite enjoy it it's problem solving in a different way and yeah I get to be near my family and friends and near my interests and just moved into a flat where I get to stay for as long as I want (laughs) so I'm quite pleased I mean yeah that sounds pretty ideal and I'd imagine your your experience and the reasons for sort of not continuing the PhD probably hold quite widely but I guess on that note the big question so for people kind of contemplating an exit from the PhD, do you have any advice for what you'd recommend they, they do, how to do that well? Quick answer, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I thought, because it, it's so difficult. And I think, okay, one thing I can say is that I haven't decided that I'm never going to pick up, pick up my PhD. Uh, and I think that that's one of the things, everyone sort of knows that, you know, you can finish it whenever, but it's like, it doesn't stick. You're like, oh, I won't be one of those people that quit but I think it's easier to let go of something when you know it can still be there when you need it to be so I wouldn't be too worried about you know losing something forever an opportunity and then I would say you know letting go of the prestige it's quite prestigious to be a PhD student and I mean I can't say that I haven't I still sometimes feel a bit ashamed of quitting and feel like I have failed somehow but I'm trying not to (laughs) And generally just, I think you shouldn't do it. One shouldn't think of it as too big a thing. If if you don't enjoy it right now, maybe pause it, maybe quit it and you can pick it up again and try to not take it too seriously. And it's a very bad generic advice, but I don't know. Talk to your supervisors. Don't do what I did and don't tell anyone and then just kind of, ooh, I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I always think it, it depends a lot on why you're not enjoying it. But if you're genuinely not enjoying philosophy right now and feel like you need to do something else like I did, do something else. I really appreciate the perspective. And uh, Mira, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com. <laughs>